So in the last few weeks, I have been to several surprise birthday parties. And over the last few weeks in going to these parties, I've realized that surprise parties are one of my greatest fears in life. Um, I, I don't mind going as a guest to celebrate somebody else if they're being surprised. Like if you like having that thing done for you, great, I'm all for it. But for me, it scares me, um, and for several reasons. One, I'm naturally a skittish person. I'm kind of jumpy. Like, if I'm ever at home and just, like, cooking something on the stove and Lauren just, like, touches me on the shoulder, like, she does so at her own risk. Like, I just, I start swinging. I can't control it. And so the thought of, like, coming around a corner and having just a whole group of people yelling at me, I just, I, I don't do well. And then after people scare you, they decide that it's a good idea to have you stand in the middle of them, and they're just going to sing to you, and you just have to stand there and take it. And, and that's, that's the real terror of birthday parties, surprise birthday parties. And I've got this theory that you don't really know someone until you've seen them have happy birthday sung to them, because in that moment, people will show you who they really are. And, and people just act weird, like some people decide that they're suddenly like an orchestra maestro, and they just start directing people. Some people start singing along. If you're like me, I just close my eyes and start praying that Jesus will come back right now <laughs> so I don't have to endure anymore. And then they like make you open presents in front of people, and you have to have like the perfect amount of excitement and surprise for each gift to each person. It's just this social pressure cooker that you're thrust into when you thought you were probably just going home at the end of the day <laughs> and ready to pack it in. Um, so I, I don't like surprise parties. The one thing I do like about surprise parties, there's only one, is talking about all the lying that went in in order to pull off the party. And so it's when people look back and they're like, yeah, when I asked you to go do this, I was actually meeting with so-and-so. Or when I asked you to run, get these errands, I didn't need those things. I just needed to get the house ready. And so I love, you know, the surprise person. They look back and they're like, oh, like all of those really weird random things I didn't see, it all makes sense now. Like I, I get it. It could only lead to this one thing. So if, if you've been with us uh, for the last few months here at Redemption Parker, we have been studying the book of John, and so I'd go ahead and invite you to open to John chapter 10. Last week we looked at the first chapter, or the first half of John chapter 10. This week we are looking at the second half. We're going to be looking at verses 22 through 42. And like he has so many times throughout this gospel, Jesus is having a conversation with the Jews, and there's not a surprise party, thankfully, but there is this moment where in the conversation, Jesus points backwards. He points back to all the things that he has done and all the things that he has said up to this point. And some people have that aha moment of like, oh my gosh, like you did all these things, you said all these things, like I, I see it now, you're, you're Jesus, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, it makes sense to me. But other people, they look back on what Jesus has done and they hate him for it. They, they say that he's insane or that he has a demon or they try and kill him. There are just these two totally different reactions to Jesus when he, he says, look back on the things that I have done. 
And the same is true for the people here in this room. We have two kinds of people. We have people who have had that, you know, Christ aha moment where you look at Jesus and you say, I believe who you are, I believe what you claim, you are the Messiah, and I trust you. And there are other people who look at the exact same thing that Jesus has done and said, and they just don't buy it. They might think that, yeah, he was a good moral example, we can learn some stuff from him, but he's God? I should follow him and submit my life to him? Nah, no way. So, so that's the, the spiritual reality going on in this passage and in this room. And, and, and it's a weighty thing. Um, souls hang in the balance. And so before we begin, I just want to pray that the Lord would bless our time in his word and that for those who have had that aha moment, who do confess faith, that faith would be strengthened. And that for those who don't believe that the Holy Spirit would do a mighty work in your heart in the next few moments. So if you would, pray with me. Lord, everybody spends eternity somewhere. And eternity is a very long time. And it's just something I've been reminded of repeatedly this week in preparing for this passage, that some will know you and some will not. And so, Lord, I ask that by your Spirit, that for the people in this room who do not know you and do not believe in you, that you would open their eyes, open their ears, enlighten their minds and their hearts, that they may see Jesus for who he really is, and that you would bring dead people to life. We ask that you would do this for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So John chapter 10, starting in verse 22, and Jesus is walking around the temple, and the Jews come up to him, and they ask him, how long will you keep us in suspense? So I don't think they like surprises either. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ then tell us plainly. And Jesus answers, and it can be hard to know somebody's tone if all you have is a written account, but if I had to guess, I would guess that Jesus' tone when he responded was one of frustration. He said, I've told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. So it's kind of like when a parent has to tell their kid something 50 times and it still doesn't sink in. Jesus is like, I have told you that I am the Christ, but, but for some reason you still, still don't get it. And so if you've been with us as we've been studying John, like this shouldn't be unfamiliar, that this should sound familiar to you that Jesus claimed to be the Christ. At the very beginning of John's gospel, in chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was God, and he was with God from all of eternity. And then you move down a few verses, that that word became flesh and dwelt among us. Later in chapter 1, John the Baptist, he sees Jesus and he points to him and he says, Behold, look, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
In chapter 2, when Jesus cleansed the temple from the merchants who were making a profit and taking advantage of people, he showed that he was God when he said, you are desecrating my father's house. He said, that's my father's house. I'm his son. I am God. In chapter 4, with the woman at the well, the woman said, I know that the Messiah is coming. And Jesus responds to her and says, I who am speaking to you am he. I am the Christ. In chapter 5, after he had healed the paralyzed man and the Pharisees said, you can't do that. It's the Sabbath. Jesus is like, the reason I can heal on the Sabbath is because I'm equal with God. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Then you get to John chapter 8, verse 58, where Jesus just drops probably the biggest God bomb ever, and he says, I am. That reference back to Exodus where God revealed himself to Moses saying, I had no beginning, I have no end, I am dependent on nothing, I am eternally forever and ever God. Put that together with all of the other I am statements that Jesus is the bread of life. He's the only thing that can sustain and fulfill you. He's the light of the world. He's the only one who has truth and life. Put that together with he's the good shepherd. He is the only one who will lay down his life for his sheep. Just if there is one message over and over and over and over that is being repeated throughout John, it is that Jesus is God. You can't read a single page without having that truth just blasted in front of your face. Which begs the question of the Jews that Jesus was talking to. How how did you not see this? The evidence and the testimony is overwhelming. Over and over and over, Jesus has said and he has proved that he has got how spiritually obtuse do you have to be to not get this? Jesus actually gives us the answer. In verse 26, he says that the reason that you don't believe is because you are not among my sheep. And so there Jesus is building on a metaphor that he started last week in the first half of the chapter, that Jesus is the good shepherd, and the shepherd watches after his sheep. And so he used a popular image, metaphor of that day, where there would be several shepherds who at night would bring their flock all into one pen to protect them. And when morning came and it was time to go out to graze, each shepherd uh, had, they would call out to their sheep and the sheep would recognize their voice. They would make a distinct sound. Their voice was unique. And so even though sheep were kind of stupid, they, they recognized the voice of their shepherd. So even though they were all mingled together, when the shepherd called them, the sheep could go to the one who they belonged to. And so here, when Jesus says, you are not of my sheep, he's building on that metaphor that the reason you don't believe is because you can't hear my voice. You don't recognize it. You're not one of mine. You don't hear me. You're deaf. And Jesus' bluntness astounds me sometimes. Um, Maybe it's because I'm from the South where Everybody sounds nice, but really they're just speaking in code. And so if you're ever in the South and someone says, just bless your heart, watch out. (laughs) Because 30% of that is probably them being nice, but 
the rest of it is them saying, oh, you've made some really bad life decisions, and I am judging you very, very hard right now. Okay, but, but Jesus, he doesn't speak in code. He doesn't kind of wrap it up in a nice bow so that you can digest it a little better. He says that the reason that you cannot believe is because you are not one of my sheep, period. And at first glance, that sounds really, really harsh. It sounds almost fatalistic of, you know, you're either in or you're out and that there is nothing that you can do about it. And, and if that is all that there was, like you're either in or you're out, you're one of his sheep or you're not, that, that just doesn't sound like gospel good news. But thankfully, before this kind of harsh-sounding verse, previously in the chapter, there was a very hope-filled verse. So look at uh, chapter 10, verse 16. Chapter 10, verse 16, Jesus, still using this metaphor, says that I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so that there will be one flock and one shepherd. All right, so, so did you catch that? Yes, that there are people who are part of God's flock and are his sheep, and there are people that are not. But just because you are not currently one of God's sheep, that does not mean that you can't be. Jesus said that there are other sheep that are not of his fold and that he has to go and get them. He has been sent on a rescue mission from his father to go into the world and to gather in all of the people that the father has given him. The good shepherd has more sheep and his flock is not full yet. It was true then and it is true today. There is still room in his flock. So last week, um, Mark talked about how the same voice that created the universe and spoke everything into existence, that same voice calls out to individual souls and says, come to me. You won't come to me unless I call out to you, but I'm showing you grace and saying, you're not one of my sheep, but I have set my affections on you and I love you. Now come into the fold. Just because Jesus says that you're not one of his sheep now doesn't mean that you can't be. In Luke 15, Jesus told a parable of the lost sheep. And he said, which shepherd who when one sheep runs away will not leave the 99 to go and pursue and run down that one sheep? And once he gets that one sheep, he will put it on his shoulders and rejoice. And when he gets back home with the one sheep, he will call all of his friends and family members together and they will throw a party. And that in heaven, that among the angels, that there is more rejoicing over that one re repentant sinner, that one sheep who came back than over all the other 99 who didn't need to repent. And so there are some of you in this room who are that one sheep. You have run away from the flock of God. You're either trying to deny that God exists or you know that he exists. You just don't want to come to terms with that. You're trying to ignore him. You are doing everything that you can, running as hard as you can to avoid Jesus. Well, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is the hound of heaven. 
There are people that are not of his flock, but he is determined to go and run them down. And he will do whatever it takes. He is still offering grace and life and joy and salvation. His flock is not full. And there is still room for you. And then Jesus sweetens the pot. So, so far we've talked about how God calls that one sheep. He calls the people who are not of his flock. He calls out to them and he brings the men. And then we're going to read that once he calls them, that he keeps them. Let's read verse, verses 28 through 30. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So here Jesus switches from addressing the unbelievers, those who are not a part of the flock, to addressing those who have been in, been brought into the flock. He's addressing the believer. And what he is addressing is a question that I think every Christian wrestles with at some point. Can I lose my salvation? If I've been brought in, will I ever again be cast out? So I remember as a young believer, I you know, confessed faith in Christ. I became a Christian. But the next day I woke up and I realized that I was still a sinner. And that I kept sinning. And I thought, if I'm still sinning, then that must have meant that my faith back then wasn't genuine. So I've got to pray the prayer again. I've got to walk the aisle again. I can't trust what happened then because I'm still sinning. I thought, I must have not been saved. I must have lost my salvation at some point. And Scripture does answer this question for us. Can I lose my salvation? Now, before it answers it, it does kind of give some caveats that you have to work through. Um, First, it tells us to examine ourselves to see whether we're in the faith. And and that's a different sermon for a different time to talk about whether you genuinely have put your faith in Christ. If you are putting sin to death, if you are loving your brothers and sisters, if you are bearing fruit. And, And Scripture says that those are evidences of our faith. They don't earn our faith, but they are evidences of what God has done. And if you can say yes to those things, then Scripture is clear that for those who are genuinely and continually growing in the grace of God, that yes, your salvation is secure. And so I think God knew that his children were going to struggle with this question and that they were going to struggle with it a lot. And so one of his graces to us was to Fill his word with assurances of our eternal security. Scripture is just jam-packed with promises and reminders that those whom God calls, he keeps, and that no one can snatch us out of the Father's hand. And So so just just take a minute, and, and if you're a believer, listen to the promises of Scripture and feel how tightly God's hand is holding you. If you're a young believer, and you honestly look more sinner than saint, and you have a lot of life left before you, hear Philippians 1.6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you 
will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God doesn't start something and then abandon it. If he has begun a good work in you, he is going to see you through to the finish. If you're an older believer and you have more past and future and you know that you are nearing the end, then hear the words of Isaiah 46, 3 and 4. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and I will save. If you're nearing the end, God's not going to give up on you now. He's been with you your entire life and you're getting close to the end. He's going to get you there. If you're a struggling believer, a sinning believer, and you think that your sin means that God won't take you back, then hear what Jesus said to Peter right before Peter went and sinned against Jesus and denied him three times. In Luke 22, Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've returned, knowing that he's going to fail, but when you have returned, because my prayer for your faith was sufficient, strengthen your brothers. And so if you are in sin, and if you think that that casts you out from the love of God, know that Christ prays for you, that yes, you will fail, but that ultimately your faith will survive. And to every believer who thinks of all the struggles that are in this world and wonders whether they are going to make it to the end of their life with their faith still intact, hear probably the most powerful and comforting words in all of Scripture about our eternal security for those who are in Christ. Paul says in Romans 8, 32 and 37, What can separate me from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation, including your own sin, will be able to separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. So to the believer, know that the work that Christ did on the cross was sufficient. He paid for every sin that you have committed, are committing, and are going to commit. It has all been laid on him. It has all been paid for, and it has all been done away with. And your eternal security is secure. In the words of the Puritan Richard Sibbs, there is more grace in Jesus than sin in us. And you cannot outsin the love of God. And those whom he calls, he keeps. And he keeps them until the end. And again, because the Jews simply were not one of his sheep, because they didn't have eyes to see and ears to hear, they picked up stones and they were going to kill Jesus. And Jesus has been in this situation before, been in this situation several times in John's gospel. And so Jesus asked them, for which work of God that I have done will you stone me? And I say, it's not because of any good work that we're going to stone you, but because you, being a man, 
make yourself God. Now, if you've been studying the book of John, that should sound weird. You who are a man are claiming to make yourself God? Like, that, that's completely backwards. Okay, go back and read chapter 1. If you've missed anything in John, just go back and read the first 18 verses of chapter 1. It's the perfect summary of the whole book. But again, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then verse 14, and that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So no, Jesus was not a man who claimed to be God. Jesus is God who became man. They, they just got it completely backwards. And Jesus' response is kind of difficult to understand. They make these accusations of him that are just totally wrong. And in verse 34, he answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? And if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? I'm not going to lie. First five times I read that, I was like, what? I have no idea. So that, that one took a little digging on my part. But here, Jesus is getting into like a technical argument about words and language to kind of get out of this bind that he's in with the Jews. And, and what he does is he quotes Psalm 82. And in verse 6 of Psalm 82, that verse says, uh, I said, you are gods. And what that verse is referencing in the Old Testament were uh, politicians or judges in that day who would write law and pass sentence uh, over the people. And to the common people, their leaders were referred to as little g gods. Not in the sense that they were in any way divine, but just in the sense that they held authority over the people. And so here Jesus is using a lesser to greater argument, saying if it was okay for mere mortals in the Old Testament to be referred to as gods, then how much more okay is it for someone who is actually God to be called God? And not only is it okay for Jesus, who is God, to be called God, but because he was consecrated in heaven by the Father and sent into the world from heaven by the Father, it is right and necessary to call him God. So Jesus, he kind of weasels his way out of this one with a technical argument. That was the difficult part. But then there's a really interesting part of Jesus' answer. In verse 37 and 38, Jesus said, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Even though you do not believe in me, believe in the works. Which again, that sounds strange to me. Because throughout the Bible, so much of the biblical writer's energy is given to pointing to the person of Jesus. Saying, look to Jesus, the person, by faith, and you will be saved. But here Jesus is saying, even if you can't look to me as a person then look to what I've done, to my works. Now, why is that? 
I think what Jesus is doing here is he is throwing out one last lifeline to the Jews. See, chapter 10 marks a shift in the Gospel of John. At the end of chapter 10, he's going to leave Jerusalem and he's going to go across to Jordan. He's going to spend some time there. And then starting in chapter 13, he's going to begin basically the final week of his life, but he's only going to be spending that time with his disciples. And so the the next time that Jesus comes to Jerusalem and is with the Jews and the Pharisees and kind of the religious institution at that time is going to be at his trial and crucifixion and resurrection. So Jesus, he's been doing public ministry. He's about to go dark. And so I think Jesus is throwing out one last lifeline. He's saying like, before I go, before you never see me again, here's one last thing to consider. If you can't believe in me yet, then look to what I've done. Remember that time at the wedding in Cana where I turned the water into wine? Remember that time where an official came to me and said that his son was sick and the son was 15 miles away and with a single word, I cured him instantly? Remember that time that with like a few uh, loaves of bread and some fish, I fed 5,000 men, probably 15 to 20,000 women and children? Remember that time there was a blind man and I gave him sight? Look at everything that I have done and see that my works confirm my words. The proof is in the pudding. And the end of verse 38 says that when you look to what Jesus has done, when you look to his works, you will know and understand that the Father is in him and I am in the Father. So I would offer that same advice to people who are considering the claims of Christ right now, but they just can't buy it. Either just intellectually or emotionally or morally, for whatever reason, if you can't look to the person of Christ, Jesus is offering you a lifeline. It's not sufficient to only look to his works. You have to believe in the person of Christ to be saved, but looking to his works is a great first step. And so to the person who is struggling with God right now, whether he exists, whether you should follow him, look to what Jesus has done. Look to the miracles, look to the things that he claimed, look to his creation. Consider where did all of this come from? It had to have a starting point. See how beautifully and minutely it's governed and ordered. Think of the people that you know in your life, people who claim Christ, look at who they were and look at who they are now. And that's not looking directly at Jesus, but it's looking at the things that he has done. And I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, that as you consider these things, that the Lord would open your eyes so that you can see Jesus for who he really is. So that was Jesus' last interaction with the Jews in Jerusalem before his crucifixion. And after this, at the end of the passage, he went across the Jordan to the place where John the Baptist had been baptizing before. And I know that at first glance, when we read these verses, they don't seem that important. They just seem like they're kind of transition sentences moving the story along. But I think if we look carefully at these last few verses there is something amazing that we can learn. So beginning in verse 40, he went away 
again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. So there is a stark contrast going on here between Jerusalem and across the Jordan. In Jerusalem, Jesus, people thought Jesus was insane, that he had a demon. People tried to kill him. And then over here across the Jordan, many are coming to him, and many are believing and coming to faith. Why? What, what's the difference? What's different about over here across the Jordan and here in Jerusalem? What engendered faith here that was lacking in Jerusalem? I think verse 41 gives us the answer. It's the key. And they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. So John, I think, is the ideal model of all of us when we do ministry. Uh, there was nothing that impressive about John. The text says that he did not do a single sign. He didn't perform a miracle. Nobody marveled at what he could do. He was honestly kind of a weird dude, like ate honey and locusts and wore camel's hair. Like There was nothing externally very impressive about him. But what he did do was he humbly and he consistently pointed people to Jesus. Again, chapter 1, verse 29, he saw Jesus and he pointed and he said, Behold, look, watch, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In chapter 3 of John, uh, you know, John had his own ministry. He was baptizing people. But then Jesus came on the scene, and not surprisingly, Jesus started having a bigger ministry, baptizing more people, drawing more followers. And people came to John and said, John, like, this guy's intruding on, on your ministry turf. Like, who, who should we follow? What are you going to do about this? And John said, I must decrease. He must increase. John the Baptist was a pointer away from himself and to Christ. And that is the kind of ministry that is going to flourish. That was the difference between what happened in Jerusalem, where people were sign seekers, and over here across the Jordan, where John had nothing to offer them except pointing them to Jesus. And as a pastor, this is a huge encouragement to me. Um, I know I'm not that impressive of a person. I'm not a great storyteller. I can't, you know, just take charge of a room. There are better biblical interpreters and preachers than me. There are better people than me. Socially, when I'm in large crowds, I honestly get kind of nervous and kind of just want to go into my turtle shell, which makes ministry kind of hard. Um, I'm young. I don't have a lot of experience, like I, I am well aware of the many limitations as a minister that I have. But thankfully, none of those are requirements in order to be a faithful pastor and do good ministry. Because what I can do is I can point people to Jesus. I can make much of him. I can magnify and exalt and glorify him. That's true for me and it's true of you. John the Baptist isn't just a model of ministry for pastors, but for everyone. 
I firmly believe that the Holy Spirit indwells all of his people equally, that he equips all of us for the work of the ministry, and he gifts us in different ways. And so if you are a nurse, an accountant, a stay-at-home parent, a teacher, a student, you don't have to be that impressive to have a successful ministry. You don't have to be the smartest. You don't have to be the most charismatic. You don't have to be the most persuasive. You don't have to be at the top of your field. All that you have to do is point to Jesus. Say things about Jesus. Point to what he has done and then let the people examine Jesus and he will prove himself to be true. Um, I'm reminded, you guys know I love Charles Spurgeon and... um, after Spurgeon had died, his son took over his church. And on the first Sunday that his son got up to preach, he said to the congregation, you know, big shoes to step into, um, my father can preach the gospel better than me, but he cannot preach a better gospel than me. All we have to do is to point to Jesus. You don't have to be the best at it. All we have to do is to be faithful. All we have to do is to point to him. Be like John the Baptist. You don't have to be that impressed. All you have to do is point to Jesus and then let the Holy Spirit do what he does best. And that is to make much of Jesus and to open blind eyes and to open deaf ears and to help people see in their minds and their hearts that Jesus is who he claims to be, that he is the Messiah. I'll pray for us that the Lord would give us grace to do these things. Jesus, you are great and magnificent. You are the one to whom all glory and honor and authority belong. And Lord, we give it to you. We confess that we, in and of ourselves, are nothing. We are not impressive. In fact, on our own, we are blind and deaf and dead, and our hearts are hard towards you. And so, Lord, I ask that by your Spirit, you would continue to preach a better sermon than I just did, and that for the people in this room who do not know you, I ask that by your Spirit, you would open their eyes to see the beauty and glory and the majesty and the truth of Jesus. Would you soften their hearts, remove their heart of stone, give them a heart of flesh. And for the believers who are just struggling, doing faithful work, I ask that again by your spirit that you would equip them and that you would remind them that it's not up to them to see results, that they are just called to be faithful. And you'll take care of the rest. Praise in Jesus' name, amen.